0: If you are in preschool through fifth grade, I need you to come up, and I'm going to give you a little piece of paper, and I want you to just come up real quick. You don't have to stay up here long. You can just take the piece of paper from me, and then you can go back to where you're seated at. There's that. Okay. All right. So once you get your paper, you can feel free to go back to your seat. It's kind of funny paper. It's a little different, so be careful with it. Be really careful with it. It's magical paper. No, I don't know. I don't know what it does. I don't know if you can fly on this thing or what, Caitlin? What do you think? No? you sure? Okay. All right. So you're going to need like maybe the back of your Bible, the back of your dad or mom's hand. Um, I don't know. And Hayden, let's see here. Okay. So is that it? All right. So what I want you to do, if you guys want a, you guys want a second piece of paper too, so those who got one, do you, do you want a second piece? If you want, come up here and I'll give you a second piece of paper too. If you're like, oh, I think I'm going to ruin this one. No? Come on, Isaac. Come on up here. You do it, buddy. I can see you want a second piece. All right. Perfect. Awesome. Okay. So this is what I want you guys to do. While we're talking through this passage this morning... And I'm going to give you, you probably have about 10 to 15 minutes. Maybe I'll give you 30 minutes till we're halfway through the message. Um, just kidding. Just kidding. Um, so about 10 minutes or so, 15 minutes. What I want you to do is I want you on that little piece of paper to draw the scariest creature that you can think of. The scariest creature. So it could be a face. Um, maybe it's a picture of me. I don't know, right? Whatever you see that you think of that's scary, I want you to draw a scary picture, okay? And then in about 10 to 15 minutes, maybe a little longer, I'm going to ask for it, okay? And I want you to come up here, okay, when we get when we get going with that, okay? Um, with that being said, um, if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open up to 2 Thessalonians. If not, we'll have the the, the scriptures up on the screens this morning. But... One of the things that we have been kind of enamored with, specifically in this day and age, is what Christ's return will look like. We see our culture in turmoil. We see the world kind of turned upside down. We see sin reigning, and we are all filtering it through this lens of, when is Jesus coming back? Well, And this morning, we're going to kind of wrestle with this issue together. And we're going to dive into this text, and we're going to see what God has to say about His return. When we think about our culture today, when we think about the world today, there's a lot in it that actually is somewhat scary. We see sin reigning. We see leaders who are unaccountable. We see in our own country murder on the rise in certain cities. We see sin being accepted and, and called normal. We see, at least outwardly, within our own county, what seems to be less and less people responding to the gospel, counting themselves as part of Christ's church. And we see a world that lives in total fear. We see a world that seeks human answers to spiritual problems. We live in a county that is known as a spiritual county. And yet, by spiritual, what they mean is a belief in something other than themselves, but not the one true God. Not the God of creation, not the God of the Bible, not the God who sent His Son, Jesus. One of those sayings that you can hear of today, you hear all the time, is, I have physical well-being, I have mental well-being, I have emotional well-being, and I have spiritual well-being. What in the world is spiritual well-being apart from Christ? I don't mean that flippantly. But to acknowledge something other than your emotions, to acknowledge something other than what is mental, to acknowledge something other than what is physical, acknowledges a supernatural work within you, your soul, a soul that God has given each and every single one of us as a creative being by him, making us distinct and unique from all of God's creation the soul. So this morning we're going to actually deal with this idea of kind of the corrected piece of Christ's return. There's all kinds of views about when Jesus will return and yet the only one that matters is the one that Christ tells of in his word. So let's dive in it together this morning. We're going to be looking at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Let's stand as we read this passage together this morning. This is what it says. It says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word. Or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and a man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you do not know what is restraining him now, excuse me, and you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders." And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Father, as we look at your word this morning, as we deal with the truth of your return May we see what your word has to say about it. And may we be at peace, Lord, with the return that you've promised. Father, if we're hearing your word today and we've never responded to your truth by believing on you, I pray that today would be the day. Lord God, in our hearts and in our minds, May we be a people who live at peace because the truth, the truth of your return is clear. The truth of your defeat is clear. And the truth of your salvation through grace alone, by faith alone, is clear. Lord, move me aside and may we be a people of peace knowing and understanding the truth of your return. And we ask this in your name, amen. So as we begin this passage, at the heart of what Paul is pointing out to the Thessalonians is that a correct understanding of Christ's return gives peace when faced with the current turmoil in our culture. A correct understanding of Christ's return gives peace when faced with current turmoil in our culture. A correct understanding of Christ's return gives peace when faced with current turmoil in our culture. It's a correct, a correct understanding of His return. And that correct understanding brings peace. Now, notice what happens here. He says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So Paul is in dealing with the the Thessalonians and this question that has arisen They've been told that there will come a time where Jesus will return for his people. He will gather them together and he will establish his kingdom. We know that from 1 Thessalonians. In his first letter, he told the Thessalonians that this would occur. But something's happened between now and then. They've either heard a spoken word, they've either received a letter. Or they've been confused by a demonic spirit about what is to come, and the challenge in this is that Paul is trying to bring them back to a right understanding of his of Christ's return, so that they are not alarmed or shaken. Now, notice what he's not saying here is be comfortable. What he is saying is be at peace. Don't be alarmed. Don't be shaken. Because the Thessalonians were living in a culture where persecution was increasing. If you recall that we saw in our first message, in the first chapter, persecution was increasing amongst the believers. They had been told that Christ would come, and yet they hadn't seen Christ coming it's kind of what First Peter speaks of, where there were scoffers, those that were saying, really, he's going to come? He has yet to come. Where is he? And Paul's saying, listen, I've told you what is to come. Now, a lot of times when we look at these passages from a well-intended perspective, we filter them through our own understanding of eschatology, We let the doctrine drive the scripture rather than the scripture drive the doctrine. And God calls us to look at the scripture and allow the scripture to drive the doctrine. It means that this morning what we're not preaching a message on is pre-tribulation, rapture, and premillennialism, or historical premillennialism, which does not deal with the rapture, or amillennialism. That's not the lens by which we're looking at this morning. We're not looking at the doctrine ahead of the truth. We're looking at the truth to shape the doctrine. And this is what Paul was doing with them. He was reminding them of what was to come and what is to come. And this is important. Because wherever you land the truth, whatever your view is of end times theology the truth is still the same. And he lays that out for us here. And there is a reason he lays it out for us. And I say this by warning. Sometimes we choose an eschatology that is very comfortable. When in fact, Scripture might point at an area where we might endure through something rather than be removed from it. There is a reason that Paul put this in as a warning, as an encouragement. And I share this not to rock our worlds on eschatology, but I share this to say that the Scripture drives this. And it was important that the Thessalonians understood what was happening so they might be at peace when it did happen. And the same is true for us today. That we might be at peace When we see the things take a place in our world. You'll see bumper stickers today. That kind of flippantly announce. Hey, if this car is empty, right? Just assume I've been raptured. I think it does a great disservice to the kingdom of God. Our concern should be greater about the lost, and those in need of salvation, that it is about waiting for the day that we are removed or in some way restored. God has promised to glorify us in His coming, in His return, in His appearing. But our eschatology has to be in line with the truth of God, not what is most preferable to us. And I hope as we walk through this this morning that what you're not trying to do is figure out where I land on eschatology, because I'm not going to tell you this morning. But where I hope you come to is that we see the truth that gives us peace and that we are prepared for the second coming of Jesus. So this is what we look at this morning is this concern that they had that the day of the Lord had already come. And Paul comes to him and says, listen, listen. The day of the Lord hasn't come yet. Correction. It's still to come. And he says in it, in verse 2, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in this way. So he's saying... If you don't want to be deceived about the coming of Jesus, go back to the scriptures. Land on the scripture. Land on the truth. Don't try to make it fit a theology that you hope it is to be. Come to a place where the scripture gives you confidence. Why do I share that? Because when we deal with future prophecy, we can try to make these wonderful pictures and Although I enjoy the left-behind movies, they set things up with a picture that nobody knows of yet what is to come. We know what the Bible says, but we need to be careful that we don't own future interpretation. The Jews thought that they were receiving a Messiah King who would rule and destroy nations in their present day who would feed them and bring Israel back to a land of prosperity, and they completely missed it because they moved away from what the truth actually said. They had not grounded their understanding of the Messiah in his word. And that's the danger of trying to project out what will happen in those days. God's given us exactly what we need. We see it all through Revelation. We see it here in 2 Thessalonians. And it's a warning to us, so that we are not deceived, so that we do not fall away. So he goes on, and he says, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So what he begins to lay out is he begins to lay out the truth of Christ's coming. And the first aspect of that truth is that things will get worse before Christ comes. Things will get worse before Christ comes. Notice what it says. It says that the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So although we see evil in our world today, it will get worse. It's not going to get better. This is important for us as Christians, because we do a lot of complaining about the condition of the world. It should simply motivate us towards the gospel, plain and simple. We need to recognize it's not going to get better. It will only move more and more towards defilement the closer we get to the return of Jesus. And I would dare say that I think as Christians, we get wrapped up with the condition of the world and focused on that and the hope to see something change within our government or our culture or our world when in fact the true change in the world that the world needs is Jesus. And so we shouldn't surprise that it's getting more evil. That shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't catch us off guard. we shouldn't even, dare I say, move to a place of depression over it. Because God has already said it will occur. And we embrace that truth. We, we drive towards the truth, which is that people need Jesus. Now, this word rebellion is the Greek word apostasia, which translates directly as apostasy, which means to fall away from faith. And to rise up in open defiance to authority. It deals with both those inside of the church who will fall away following false teachings, rising up against the authority of Christ and His Word. It deals with all of culture rising up against the authority that's been placed over them. It is a world where chaos reigns, where anarchy reigns. And so you have this falling away from those who know Christ or who are claiming Christ, who actually don't know Jesus, but are within the church, who are being led astray by false teachings. And it is in a culture and a world where chaos now begins to move all throughout the world. It's a rebellion. Now that rebellion occurs both within the church and in our culture. 1 Timothy 4 verses 1 through 5 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require absence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. There will be false teachers rising up. We see that today in our culture, don't we? We see churches who who claim to be churches standing on the truth and the word of God, but who have come to a place where socially they're now permitting and saying, yes, God does ordain Same-sex marriages. God does ordain a woman's right to choose abortion. And we would say, Scripture says, no. Sin is sin. Sin is sin, and it's determined by his truth. So as a part of this rebellion, the man of lawlessness will be revealed. So who is that man then? Well, that man is the Antichrist, the son of destruction, Now, old translations used to describe this as the son of sin. It's the idea that sin will reign in his life and in his leadership. It will be overwhelming. It will be like nothing we've seen before. Edmund Hebert put it this way. He said, sin has such absolute domination over him that he seems to be the very embodiment of it. The very embodiment of sin. Think about that. Here's what it's saying. You think you've seen evil before? you ain't seen nothing yet. That's what he's saying. This is evil that is beyond anything that is comprehensible. The Antichrist will come, and notice here, this evil one will sit in the temple of God proclaiming to be God. See, he's the embodiment of Daniel 11, verse 36 through 39, which says, And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. This is a man of evil. A man who is going to claim to be the Messiah who's going to have his own coming with his own message, a message of complete and utter rebellion, of lawlessness, where sin will be affirmed and thrived. And this is why Jesus says in Matthew 24, 5 through 11, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pangs. Then they shall deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will rise and lead many astray. Wow. That's a question for us as followers of Jesus. Are we surrendered to the God of truth? I ask this question for us honestly. Are you happy and content with being lukewarm in your faith? Because the implication here is you will be deceived. Those who are actually not Being in relationship with God, who are considered lukewarm in Revelation, we're told that Jesus spits the lukewarm out. That should be a warning to us. A lukewarm faith is a faith that is prone to deception. The question is, we don't want to be spit out. We need to not be content with comfort in this life while we have a faith really truly in name only because we will be deceived it's important now what's the piece of truth here the piece of truth is that Christ's coming will be clear Christ's coming will be clear you're not going to have to guess about it. If you know who Jesus is, you're not going to have to guess when he comes. This isn't going to be like, hey, the Antichrist sits there and you go, ah, man, I really wonder if that's Jesus. The Spirit will testify to who he is. It will be clear. There are signs of his coming. It is a rebellion, an apostasy that occurs where the Antichrist established himself. Now, the Antichrist will have existed well before the Antichrist is revealed. And then will come that period of tribulation where rebellion will reign and the Antichrist will sit on the temple of God, in the temple of God, on the throne, proclaiming to be God himself. Now, 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Here's the beautiful thing. When Jesus comes, no one will miss it. When Jesus comes, no one will miss it. You don't have to guess if it's Jesus. So if there is any doubt in your mind it isn't Jesus. That's the awesome thing. He's made it. He's taken the guesswork out. But for those who are not believers in Christ, that should be one of the scariest days of your life. Because at that moment, what you are experiencing is the greatest mercy in your life. Because apart from Jesus, it only gets worse. And so his coming is preceded by this rebellion and the establishment of the Antichrist. His coming is preceded by the trumpet sound where all will see him come. That should give us freedom. Because sometimes we get locked in looking for signs that Jesus is coming, trying to figure out when it's going to be, and he's saying, it's clear, don't worry about it. That's an awesome thing. It's why prophecy can sometimes get us into danger. Because we're looking for all the signs, wondering what's going to happen. And Jesus is saying, I've told you what's going to happen. Stop worrying about how it's going to happen. It will be clear and focus on my mission. It's good news. The piece of truth is that Christ's coming will clear. I don't have to worry about trying to figure out when it's going to happen. It'll be that clear. Now, the second aspect of the truth of his coming is this, is that evil and the Antichrist are restrained until time appointed by God. Evil and the Antichrist are restrained until the time appointed by God. So when the rebellion comes, when the Antichrist is revealed, that means the time is near. Jesus is almost back. We've entered this period of tribulation, and evil and the Antichrist are actually being restrained. Here's the interesting thing about this. The restrainer is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is actually holding back evil in the world today. That's why 1 John tells us that there are many Antichrists who precede the Antichrist. In 1 John 4, verses 2 and 3. The reason is is that the Holy Spirit is waiting for the time of Christ's return, and he is holding evil back. That is called common grace. That's a grace that's being extended to all humanity, to believers and unbelievers alike. And it is a precursor of what's to come. For us to actually see evil and the effect of evil is actually a revelation by God. God is actually opening our eyes to see the evil. So he actually says that there's a mystery of lawlessness at work, that God is the one that helps us see evil so that we might see his grace. And the mystery of lawlessness is working now, but the full effect of that lawlessness cannot and is not seen until the Holy Spirit removes his hand and lets evil become unrestrained. If you think of the most grotesque, most heinous act you've ever heard of in your life, this is but a kernel of sand, a grain of sand to what is to come. We haven't seen any evil as of yet in the matter of unrestrained evil. It should move us to a place of the gospel. Our hope needs to be in the gospel. We think we've seen evil, but we haven't even begun to comprehend it. The full outworking of sin, the full outworking of evil is so extreme because today it's being simply held in check by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of the gospel, because God is a patient God who desires that none should perish And the mission that he's given to his church is to proclaim the gospel. And the desire that he has for each one of us is that we might repent and believe on the gospel. Now this same spirit who is restraining the gospel is holding back the evil that exists within the world. And the effect and consequence of sin, which are already working is not being fully seen. What he means is that the power of sin is not fully understood. One commentator says this, it's not open sin and wickedness, but dissembled piety, spacious errors, and wickedness under a form of godliness, cunningly managed, that is here meant. Meaning that the idea behind this is it is sin right now that is masked masked. It means that people are still able to hide their sinful desires and their sinful actions. But in that time of rebellion, there will be no hiding of evil. It will come forth and be fully present. See, God is currently the one who shows us this power of sin, and he's the revealer. So what's the piece of truth then? Where does the peace come in this truth? Well, we see at the last part of this verse, in verse 8, he says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Now, kids, I want you to come back up here. I want you to bring your pictures with you if you got your pictures. Do you have them? Anybody have a picture of the ugliest or the meanest? Come on up, Aubrey. I see you. Come up, Hayden. Come on up, guys let's see your pictures here real quick. All right. I'm going to take them each from, let me look at Hayden's here first. Let's see. A fox, is it says a fox stopping you. Is that what you said? What is it? What does it say? A fox, staring at you. a fox staring at you. Perfect. Okay, good. A fox staring at you. You guys can't see these pictures. Let's see. Aubrey. Yeah, that's pretty ugly. <laughs> you were looking at me while you were drawing that, weren't you? Is that a portrait of me? Are you sure? It's pretty ugly. Um, Caitlin, let's see yours. Oh, that looks like your uncle. Oh, my dad. It's actually got my dad on it. Well, go, Tim. All right, let's see yours. That's clowns. No? It's a seven-headed masking. Ah, seven-headed masking. Well done. Okay, okay, that's good. Okay. Alright. Let's see. This is a what is it? S- Snuggly wuggy? Oh, uh, huggy wuggy. Okay, perfect. Huggy. Yeah, it's pretty ugly too. Good, yeah. Perfect. Okay. Oh. A zombie with four arms, three eyes, a couple knives, a few knives. <laughs> Sophia, perfect. Huh. Okay. No, you go back here. You're good. That's good. It's good. No, you got to come back here. Sophie, I'm going to make you stay up here real quick. Hayden, come on up here real quick. Okay. So we've got all these ugly creatures. You guys did a great job, by the way. This is fantastic. So I want each of you to hold one. It doesn't have to be yours. Okay. Hold them, hold them, hold them, hold them, hold them. Okay. Okay. I'm going to do something. Okay. Hold this. Okay. Come out. I want you to line up in a straight line. Okay. Now, got all those ugly guys, right? Okay. I want you to hold your piece of paper out in front of you like this, just like this. Okay. Caitlin, you trust me? You sure? I'm going to light this on fire. Don't let it go. And I mean it. Okay? Don't let it go. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Okay. Stand right there. Hold it. And just let it go. Let it go. Don't, don't drop it. Oh, whoa, all right, okay, all right, whoa, (laughs) do you want to do it, no, okay, okay, that's good, okay, if you want, you can drop it right when I light it, you want to do that, no, okay, all right. Okay, thank you guys. You guys can go take a seat, okay? So, all those scary creatures, right? All those scary creatures, every single one of them is gone. There's not even a trace of the paper left, right? It's gone. Here's what Jesus says about the Antichrist. It says that Christ will defeat the Antichrist... And in it, bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The Antichrist will be completely destroyed by the breath of Jesus and brought to absolutely nothing. That's the God that we serve. That's an awesome thing. That's how powerful that Christ is. He will destroy the Antichrist, leaving nothing behind. This is good news. It means that if we're in Jesus, we have nothing to fear about the Antichrist. But if we're not, we have everything to fear. If Jesus can destroy the Antichrist with simply the breath of his mouth, that word enuma in Greek is the word numa. It actually carries with it the idea that it is very possible that what is being expressed there is that the Spirit of Christ is going forth and striking down the Antichrist, instantly leaving nothing. This is not a battle where we go, ooh, it's close. It's not like an ultimate fighting match where somebody wins for a little bit, and then later they get a little tired and they battle. This is not that kind of battle. This is a battle where Jesus, by the breath of his mouth, destroys the Antichrist, and it is decisive. It is as fast and flashy as that paper. It's good news. It's what Isaiah said of in Isaiah 11, 1 through 5, where he says, "...there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear." But with righteousness, now this is Jesus, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Jesus is the fulfilled promise. The Messiah Revelation 19, 15 adds, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. Boy, doesn't it give us peace when we just hang and cling on to the truth? When we stop trying to figure out what's going to happen? There's enough peace already in his word for us to try to give a picture of what it's going to be. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't think on these things. But it does mean that we, we need to cling to the scriptures and let the, the scriptures shape our understanding of what is to come rather than trying to fit the scriptures into what we think and hope is going to come. The third truth and the final truth is that the deception of Satan at work in the Antichrist is for the condemnation of unbelievers. That's scary. The deception of Satan at work in the Antichrist is for the condemnation of unbelievers. Here's the thing. We're told here that the man of lawlessness here is actually a result of the activity of Satan at work within him. All of a sudden, he understands that he is actually Satan incarnate, if you put it that way, that he's present. There's one other who was described in this way, the man of lawlessness, the man of sin, the man of perdition, and it was Judas. Judas. And we're told in the Gospels that the devil actually filled Judas to bring about the death of Jesus and betrayal of Jesus. And at the same time, no death was going to keep Jesus in the grave because God raised him from the dead on the third day. But this man of lawlessness is for the destruction of all those who choose not to believe. He will carry false signs and wonders. It's why Jesus says that there will be those who say, But I've done miracles in your name. And Jesus will say, I do not know you, depart from me. Because miracles and signs and wonders were never the mark of salvation. The mark of salvation was the Spirit's work in your life growing you in those fruits. Growing you in love for one another. Growing you in Jesus. And then he says this. He said, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. judgment will be clear and final. It is for their condemnation. And what he's saying here is the Antichrist embodies all of that which occurs in the person who rejects the grace of God, who refuses to believe in Jesus because they love the pleasure of unrighteousness. Did you catch that? That the Antichrist embodies all of which Exists within those who refuse to believe in Jesus because they love pleasure. It is God handing them over to their ultimate desire, Him giving them exactly what they wanted. And this delusion comes to them in part. So, what? It says. It says, therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned. They didn't want to believe the truth. They don't want the truth. They loved unrighteousness. And God says, listen, now in the face of who I am, not by faith, I've handed them over to a delusion so as to be the final condemnation upon their life because they loved pleasure over righteousness. In Romans 1, verses 18 through 22, and then 28 through 32, it says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. That's the delusion that's been handed over. That's God's judgment. That's their condemnation. The Antichrist came for the condemnation of those who don't believe. Now, what's the piece of truth? The piece and truth in this is simply this. That Christ grants salvation to all those who believe in his truth for righteousness. For all those who believe in his truth for righteousness. How many times does he say here that they may believe what is false in order they be condemned who did not believe the truth. They refuse to love the truth. The belief that's being spoken of is the belief in the truth for God's righteousness. Even the demons believe that Jesus is who he claimed. But the difference is they don't see the need for his righteousness. They choose sin and rebellion and chose sin and rebellion against God and were cast out. For us, when we choose unrighteousness over believing in the truth of Jesus, we experience the same condemnation that's being spoken of in this passage. And so if you are being confronted with that truth, that you have just simply believed in Jesus' name, but you have not seen your sinful condition apart from Christ, I want to encourage you this morning, repent and believe on Jesus. That's what it means to believe on Jesus, is to believe that you also need His righteousness. And the only way to have that is to acknowledge that He has already taken our punishment and our penalty. For those who know Jesus, this passage ought to bring us peace in the face of Christ's coming. But it also ought to have us clear about the message that we bring. It's not simply say a prayer, it's not simply say these words. It's not simply having a friend in fellowship who claims to know Jesus, but who is walking in open unrighteousness and rebellion. Our call as believers is to go to that person in Christ, in love, in truth, and confront them if we need to about the sin that's present in life. And if we have unrighteousness that's unchecked in our life, we need to hear from our brothers and sisters with humility, because the cost is too great, and the cost is eternal. Romans 3 reminds us, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. May we walk away as a hopeful people and a people in peace, motivated by God's truth. Not looking for a comfortable way out and not looking to find all the pieces so that we might know what is to come. God has given us exactly what we need to know that he's coming, to know that it will be clear to know that he defeats the Antichrist and the only means of salvation is granted through belief in Jesus for righteousness. And may we get on mission with him and stop worrying about the things that don't matter, that we have no control over, but live with a passion for his purpose and an urgency for the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we get to stand Together in the beauty of your grace. Thank you that you're coming. Thank you that you've given us the truth of how you're coming. And God, please let us not get sidetracked, but let us move forward in power power that is empowered through the Spirit and through the gospel. And may we see the urgency to the commission that you've given us. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.